credit scores, down payments, interest rates. Car buying can be a numbers game, but you don't have to be a math expert to get the keys to your dream car. Just use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. Crunch your numbers and get personalized results so you know exactly how much you'll pay each month for your car. It's like having a magic wand for your wallet. Presto! The car you've been wanting is now within reach. So hit the road and leave your calculator at home. Auto Trader. It's been almost 3,000 years and Greek mythology has proved that it is not going anywhere. But it can be difficult to find entertaining and engaging retellings of these myths that aren't fictionalized. Lucky for you, I'm here. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is the Greek mythology and ancient history podcast of your dreams. I dive into the convoluted and confusing ancient sources so you don't have to. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. And welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh, and there's Chuck. It's the one o'clock hour. I just had a nice Caesar salad. So yeah. that means it's time for stuff you should know. How do, you, do you dress yours lightly, or do you like it soggy? Uh, I do it smartly. No, I start That's... out light and then add as needed. <laughs> okay, because you know you. I've I've experienced the regret of too much salad dressing. Right, you can't take it away. No, you can't unring that bell. You cannot. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Rolling Stone magazine. What's your history with this rag? It's um, a couple. It goes back a couple of days, at least. Oh, you were never into the magazine at all? No. I mean, I've read plenty of like Rolling Stone articles over the years, like Matt Taibbi stuff, uh-huh. um, some Hunter Thompson stuff, and of course, you know, every once in a while, I'll just run across a really good article from like years back, right? But uh-huh. that was it. Never had a subscription, never bought it at the magazine rack or anything like that. that oh, was, okay. You know, I just wasn't into it. I didn't hate on it or anything like that. I just was never into it. Not like you're going to today? <laughs> <laughs> I won't hate on it today. I'll just reveal facts. Yeah, so my history, if you care, is uh I I always loved Rolling Stone magazine. And I continue to digitally subscribe. And, uh, you know, it is, as we will learn, it is not a magazine without its downs and controversies. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, And, you know, it's, as Ed even points out in this research, like, it's sort of been sport over the last two decades to sort of debate when and if Rolling Stone has lost its way. Mm Mm-hmm. but it's a magazine that I always um, – I just took what I took from it. Right. Like when I was reading, you know, at the end of this, we'll get to some of their biggest controversial articles and like very poor, shoddy journalism. And like I never read any of those. So I've always just sort of taken from it what I wanted to and uh, not really thought about it a lot until this research. Man, there's nothing more rock and roll than that. <laughs> but I do want to plug another magazine. <laughs> what? Uh, Cream Magazine is back. Oh, really? Yeah, I've seen people be, you know, the 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 ones in the know uh-huh. are like, Cream was always better than Rolling yeah. Stone. Well, it was. And, uh, <laughs> like, my magazine of choice for music since the probably early 2000s was Magnet, which I still... Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. 
you know, went away, then it came back. And then, <clears throat> uh, but Cream is back now, and you, I think you get, I subscribed immediately. Uh, you get four paper copies per year, like a quarterly issue, which is kind of cool. Sure. Uh, but what's really cool, dude, is if you subscribe, you get access to all of the archives. So wow. it's really fun to go back and read like a contemporaneous Lester Bangs or Cameron Crow piece. Uh-huh. Uh, from Cream Magazine. So I highly recommend here at the beginning of our Rolling Stone article <laughs> to subscribe to the new Cream. Right. So, yeah, Cream, <clears throat> the impression I have is Cream is the one that, like, really was true to what it was going for pretty much from start to finish, while Rolling Stone was viewed as more of, like, the corporate version of that, almost from the outset. Yeah, the reason that it was viewed as that and still is today is because the guy, one of the founders, Jan Wenner, was super corporate. <laughs> like, that was his goal. He was an ambitious um, hippie hanger-on, basically, who happened to be in San Francisco when the Summer of Love happened, when psychedelic rock broke out, when, like, the 60s, like, really were, were like, happening and San Francisco was the epicenter. And that's not to say he, like, didn't dig it and wasn't right. moved by it. But sure. he also saw that this was a really important thing, <clears throat> at least to him and a lot of other people. And he saw that he could probably sell ads against this. So he did what he knew how to do, and he started a, a magazine, as we'll see. Yeah, that's a nice little intro. And nice. for those of you who don't know, Rolling Stone is a music, largely music magazine. Mm-hmm. But also, in, over the ensuing years, is since uh, November 9th, 1967, has branched out into all manner of pop culture and politics. And, uh, you know, we, we didn't want to not mention what it was in case you happened to live under a Rolling Stone. <laughs> oh, man. Is that written down in your notes? No. I just I was oh, off the dome. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> so should we go back uh, in time a bit? Yeah, let's so oh let's get in the way back machine and go back to the sixties in San Francisco and it's dusty maybe, in here. Um get a contact buzz from some grass that's being smoked. <laughs> they called it grass back then. Yeah. Uh so yeah, you know, Ed is very astute to point out that the origins of Rolling Stone is kind of born out of this sort of um uh, certainly 1960s, but maybe even before, um, left-wing alt-rags that are self-published, these sort of uh, poorly printed black-and-white magazines mm -hmm. about the counterculture that never really desired to make money. Uh, and, you know, most of them were super regional and never, like, went outside of um, usually the city that they were in as far as uh, distribution. But Rolling Stone was kind of born out of this idea and in particular got a lot of its influence from a San Francisco-based magazine called Ramparts. Yeah, which was a like far, far left, <laughs> radical left politics magazine. Um, there was a headline in, I think, 1968, maybe even earlier than that, that Ramparts ran. Uh, it was... Ramparts offers $10,000 for information leading to the arrest and conviction of any cop who has murdered a black man. That was on their Wordy. cover. But it was on their cover, and there's yeah. like a, a cop pointing a gun at you, the viewer, from the magazine's cover. And that's, you know, okay, that's, you know, shocking, especially for, for even back then. But it's even more shocking when you realize that just a few years before, Ramparts had been lost, launched as an intellectual Catholic quarterly. Yeah, I mean, I don't even know why they kept the same name. 
the, the, it was a complete redo. It really was. And the guy who redid it was a guy named Warren Hinkle. And you can't talk about Rolling Stone without talking about Warren Hinkle. That's right. Uh, he transformed that magazine into that, you know, that leftist rag that they knew. And it, it was, you know, obviously big in San Francisco, but it reached national levels of mm-hmm. fame, if not like widespread fame. Like the writers were uh, like featured on talk shows and um, other kind of notably, I guess, when you're uh, a magazine being written by other magazine, being written about by other magazines, mm-hmm. you've definitely made your mark. And uh, Time Magazine even had a very famous article called uh, A Bomb in Every Issue. I think it was a cover article on Ramparts Magazine. Right. Uh, and though it would uh, exist alongside Rolling Stone uh, for a little while in the 70s, it was not a big uh, widespread financial success. And obviously because of his politics had a pretty um, – just by nature of of what it was, a sort of limited audience. Right. And so Jan Wenner, who was one of the founders of Rolling Stone, who basically personified Rolling Stone over the decades because he was the CEO for years and years and years, Mm -hmm. he was involved in Ramparts um, through a guy named Ralph Gleason, who we'll meet in a second. But the upshot of this is that Jan Wenner saw Ramparts, what it was doing, how important it was, and that it never really took off. That I saw it blew through at least two personal fortunes, Rampart Magazine before it declared bankruptcy. And he noted that, and he, he kind of took it to heart for his magazine, Rolling Stone. And the lesson for him was reflect the counterculture without actually, like, furthering the agenda, and you can probably be absorbed by much more people and be palatable to advertisers, too. Yeah, and as far as Winner goes, uh, he himself was a college dropout from Berkeley. Um, he is sort of the personification of what we now think of as like the boomer generation, Mm -hmm. uh, which is to say that he, uh, and and probably still does, you know, um, just sort of laud that generation and everything they did as of the utmost importance. And the music of the time and the movements of the time were truly historic and not to be um, trifled with. And Mm -hmm. uh, also in a sort of boomer-esque way, um, said, but you know what's great is making tons of money. <laughs> right. <laughs> Being a capitalist. And loving Coke. Uh, sure. Yeah, I'm sure that was not, uh, I'm sure they were not in short supply. No, they the weren't. He was, he was very famous for his ability to put, put away bags of cocaine. <laughs> All right, so you mentioned Ralph Gleason, who we're going to meet. Uh, he was a jazz critic, a music critic, who also dabbled in the rock and roll uh, world, but he was not a boomer. He was born in, I think, 1917. So he was 30-ish years older than Venner, and they met at a Jefferson Airplane concert and became buddies. And I think uh, uh, Jan Winner really looked up to him, and they sort of developed a, a mentor uh, relationship. Mentor, mm-hmm. men, mentee? Is that what it is? It depends. So if if Gleason was strictly kind of advising and training and teaching um, Jan Winner, that would make him a mentee. But okay. if he did anything to further Jan Winner's career, which he ended up doing, that would make Winner his protege. Okay. Well, let's just say it was a mix of both. Sure. I, I just <laughs> I looked it up and I really wanted to share that. <laughs> I got gotcha. you. Okay. There is a distinction. Sure. Uh, but they were friends, and uh, I believe it was Gleason that also worked for Ramparts mm-hmm. uh, some. And then when Ramparts fell apart, 
they hatched the idea for Rolling Stone magazine. Well, it, so Gleason left even before Ramparts fell apart because Warren Hinkle did not love the psychedelic rock uh, era, did not love hippies. Um, and Ralph Gleason did, even though he was a jazz critic, he definitely got the psychedelic movement and was very um, appreciative of it and wrote very um, kindly about it in his columns in, in Ramparts. Um, but their falling out happened when Warren Hinkle ran the social history of the hippies, yeah. which was a pretty unflattering cover story about hippies and the summer of love and how basically he accused them of of falling down on the job of taking over the responsibility to steer the country. And instead, they were just off like dropping acid and, and shirking their responsibility, which would pan out to be really prescient when you're talking about the baby boomer, boomer generation, right? And um, uh, Ralph Gleason didn't appreciate that at all. So he left in disgust. He quit Ramparts. And that was about the time when Winter was like, hey, let's make a magazine together. Summer of Love, 1970. Who can forget? I know. Oh, wait, no, it was 72. <laughs> 72. Yeah, because John Travolta played at the Woodstock (laughs) for that Summer of Love concert in 72. Oh, boy. I always feel bad for people who don't pick up on the inside jokes. Yeah. We'll get some emails. That's all right. It's fun. Uh, So they, again, hatched this idea together, and they really um, kind of borrowed a lot from Ramparts, um, not the least of which was their logo. Um, (laughs) If you look at the Ramparts logo – it, it's I don't know if it's exactly the same font. I'm sure there's they probably technically might have made a new font, mm-hmm. but it looks a lot like that font and not the original Rolling Stone magazine font because the the earliest issues it was definitely a little bit different. But the one that we all know today is the Rolling Stone font looks a lot like Ramparts. Uh, they definitely hired away a lot of people from that magazine, including. Um, you know, some of the designers, some of the writers, mm-hmm. some of the uh, some of the editors, uh, photographers, and even the office space. They they raised um, they wanted to raise ten grand, but they ended up raising seventy five hundred dollars from a variety of investors, including uh, Jane Winner uh, and her family, mm-hmm. who was uh, Jan Winner's wife, who actually had a, a much larger role in the early days of the magazine than I believe she's usually given credit for. Yeah, I saw it described in, I think it was an Atlantic article. Is that where it was? Um, yeah, where, that yeah. was a great article. It really was. Uh, I think it was called The Rise and Fall of Rolling Stone or something like that. Um, and uh, Jane Schindelheim winner is described as basically being the, she, she was so cool that her her personality was what attracted those, you know, cool photographers and cool musicians and just people to the magazine. That that they wanted to be close to her, basically, or she knew how to behave around them, basically. Yeah, and they had a um, interesting marriage. Uh, he came out of the closet in the mid '90s, uh, much to her. Well, I say much to her surprise. Apparently, she had heard rumors over the years and things like that, but. Uh, I think it was sort of a, a sudden thing for her and uh, did not go down well. And I believe he's been in a partnership with the same gentleman since then. Yeah, it was a, it was a sudden surprise for Jan Winner, too, because I read that he was outed by the Wall Street Journal without his permission or even, oh, like, interesting. even a heads up. Really? They just outed him in the pages of the Wall Street Journal. The 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 author even pondered, like, wow, is this is this scandal going to be the thing that sinks Rolling Stone? But it was 1995 by then or 94, yeah. and everybody's like, sure. who cares? You know, it's <laughs> I don't think that qualifies as a scandal. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so 
they have this money. They got the seventy five hundred. Uh, Ed is uh, points out that Jan Winter kept his Porsche, though it's not like he sold <laughs> his Porsche to raise money for the for the magazine. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they got the money together and they hire a bunch of the Ramparts people. They, in fact, used um, a lot of the same equipment. The magazine was the same size, had a bit of the same look. Mm-hmm. They had a bunch of unused paper uh, from Ramparts that they were able to use. And they even used the offices where they printed it. I think the loft above the office was where they first made their home. So yeah. they really had a, a bit of a head start. Yeah. And so it, Ramparts had spun off something called the Sunday Ramparts newspaper, and that's what had gone defunct. So Ramparts, the magazine, is still going at this time, but yeah. they used all the Sunday Ramparts newspaper stuff, including staff, right? So they have— Well, um, Winter worked for them. Yeah. And and when Gleason quit in protest, and I think shortly after that, the Sunday Ramparts newspaper folded— that's when they got together and did this. And they, like you said, they did it with 7500 bucks, and they were able to print, I think, 40,000 copies of Rolling Stone number 1. Mm-hmm. There was a last-minute decision to put a production still of John Lennon in the, from the movie How I Won the War. Yeah. He's wearing like a— like a, a fatigues and like a, um, a helmet with netting on it and everything. He's looking at the camera. It's a very famous photograph. And they said that it was like a perfect mix or perfect um, uh, metaphor for the mix of like politics, culture, and music all rolled into one. It really was a perfect photo for Rolling Stone number one's cover for sure. I think so. Uh, and maybe we could take a break <clears throat> and talk about how that first issue fared. How's that, how's that for a cliffhanger? <laughs> it's great. All right, we'll be right back. Who hasn't heard names like Achilles or Odysseus, Cassandra, Medusa? But how much do you know about them from the ancient world? Let's Talk About Myths, Baby is the podcast bringing the ancient sources to life. Greek myth and history is timeless, and unless you've been living under a rock, you have seen just how true that is today. But there is so much more to these characters and stories than what pop culture can do justice. I'm Liv Albert, the host of Let's Talk About Myths, Baby, and every week I bring you stories from the ancient world, both mythological and historical, to breathe new life into these thousands of years old stories. I'm also regularly joined by some of the most brilliant names in the field of archaeology and ancient history, authors of your favorite retellings from today, and everyone in between. Join me as I dive into the wild world of the ancient Greeks and their stories. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths, Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. 
Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Look at all the stuff, there's so much stuff. Did it sell? No. Did it sell? No, Chuck. Now, that first uh, 40,000, I believe 34,000 issues were returned. Uh, I think a lot of this was in part to the fact that they tried to be their own distributor, Mm -hmm. which they realized right away was not a good idea. Uh, And so they quickly signed deals with distributors and newsstands and uh, realized that, you know, at 25 cents a copy, weren't going to make a lot of money with that sort of distributor partnership model. No. So, I mean, they did the sensible thing. They gave up a pretty significant chunk of their their margin to that distribution company. But in return, they were able to grow, 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 like from issue number two or three. I'm not sure exactly when they took on that new distributor, but it was pretty soon after the failure of the first issue. Yeah, and then they started selling pretty well. Um, as far as the name goes, they did get, uh, a, I think, sort of threatened, um, legally speaking, by the Rolling Stones mm-hmm. m- music group. Um, but they uh, sort of got out of that pretty quickly. I think they may have realized, hey, maybe it's good to be friends with this up-and-coming music magazine. I don't really know for sure, but well, yeah, that I, would make sense. Yeah, I saw a, um, uh, that it was, I saw it described as a letter-writing campaign or correspondence between, that was initiated by Mick Jagger. 
to Jan Wenner basically saying, hey, man, you can use this, but how about some free advertising and lots of really good coverage and all that? Yeah, Um, that's exactly what I thought might have happened. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, I guess it got dropped or something like that. Supposedly only that initial letter survived, so no one knows exactly how it panned out. But Jan Wenner was definitely the kind of person to trade you know, space for something else, like maybe advertising dollars or, you know. Cocaine? A fa- sure. A favorable <laughs> review of a, a record um, in return for that record company or the parent company advertising in Rolling Stone. He was definitely not only not a, not above doing that, he was actively chasing that kind of opportunity. Yeah, and, you know, I don't think there's a lot of people that would stand up and say that Jan Winter was the greatest boss they ever had, Mm -hmm. especially back in those days. I think he might have cleaned up his act, you know, later on. But Mm -hmm. in the 60s and 70s, it was very well known that he would, like you said, make these sort of under-the-table deals. He would play labels and writers against one another, uh, ad salespeople against one another. He was apparently a pretty cruel editor. Uh, he was never mm-hmm. the best writer in the world. He wrote uh, some reviews and things here and there, but uh, that wasn't his strong suit. But um, yeah, he was known as being fairly misogynist and sexist and sort of all the things you might imagine from a uh, sort of magazine editor-in-chief in the 1970s. Yeah, like a good example <clears throat> for the first issue and early on in Rolling Stone's life, um, a guy named Michael Lydon was the managing editor, and he used to write for Newsweek. And he brought his wife, Linda, along, who was also a writer and an editor. And Jan Winter made Linda answer the phones because she was one of the few women working there. Right. It's a good example. Yeah. And this isn't a hit piece. There's a, a very well-known biography of uh, Jan Winter out there that is um, – also, while not a hit piece, not very kind to him at all. The Sticky Fingers one that came out? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he had been, apparently Jan Winter had been shopping his his story around for, mm-hmm. you know, to be written initially by a ghostwriter and then finally a biographer. And, like, he couldn't get anybody to do it because he was just known as such a control freak. And everybody was like, I do not want to be involved with you for three or four years writing yeah. your story. Like, right. he would pick apart line by line <clears throat> captions under photos in magazines. Yeah. <laughs> this is in the 90s he was still doing this, you know? Like, he was yeah. that kind of boss. So you can just imagine what a train wreck nightmare he would have been if you were his biographer. He finally got somebody to do it, but that somebody said, dude, you've got to give me creative control over this. You have to yeah. give me freedom. And, the you know, the guy, it, like you said, it wasn't a hit piece, but it also wasn't just fawning and flattering like apparently Jan Winter had kind of hoped it would be. Right, of course. Um, as far as circulation goes, they say that it peaked in 2008 with a circulation of 1.4 million uh, and is around 500,000 today, about 27,000 of which is actually, I believe, like, you know, paper copies. Uh, although maybe that's just newsstand and not uh, subscription. Yeah, I was wondering if that number reflects their um, digital subscribership because that's yeah, kind of low, actually. It is. And honestly, I, I never really knew what magazine distribution equaled anyway. So I was surprised that it peaked at 1.4 million, which just seems for such an iconic magazine that just doesn't seem like a lot of human beings reading a magazine. No, I mean, think about it. We're not too far off from Rolling Stone's peak, you know? I didn't want to say that, but that's what I was thinking. I was I'll like, wow. Say it. I had a Caesar <laughs> salad for lunch, so I'm feeling rather chuffed. Anyway, um, 
Yeah, I, I don't know what I thought it would be. I figured it'd be like ten million or something like that. But no, that's still rather respectable. One point four oh, sure. million—that's subscribers well, that's a lot too, of I believe. Yeah, or it's circulation. I think that includes newsstand sales. But the the reason I'm wondering whether the web um, or the digital subscribers are included in that later number, the recent stuff, is because they very famously, or I should say, Jan Wenner very famously shunned the idea of moving into mm-hmm. the digital realm. Yeah, and even even his well, his son Gus was the guy who was running the digital arm. <laughs> he right. still wouldn't give him resources to support like a genuine website. Yeah. A, an example I saw is that Rolling Stone broke some story. I can't remember what story it was, but it was a big story and um everybody had to go read about it on other digital news sites because they hadn't posted anything or the story on oh. Rolling Stone's website. Like, it was like that. Interesting. Uh, they've also changed format just size-wise over the years. They um, they started out, uh, you know, as a sort of regular size, smaller magazine, or, mm-hmm. or should I just say average magazine. Um, and it was in black and white with the with a little bit of color here and there, like a single color process. And then in the early 70s, switched to a four-color process and went to that glossy, large format style that Rolling Stone, like to me, was really known for. It was always just different because it was a big, large magazine. But also, the, it was glossy, but it wasn't like the glossy, slick magazine pages of today. Wasn't it glossy newsprint, basically? Yeah, so that ended up, that gave it its own feel too, along with the size. Like it was definitely its own own thing, right? But then it went back to the small, and then now is back to the big. Isn't that right? Yeah. In two thousand eight, they went to standard magazine size. In two thousand eighteen, they said, "Oh, forget it. We're going back to the right. ten by 12. <laughs> I'm glad they did. I mean, that's I don't again. I don't buy the uh, paper version, but I just always associated that sort of iconic ten by uh, turns out eleven and three quarter size. <laughs> <laughs> it's a quarter inch really bugs me yeah it does you just made me snort man <laughs> well good so um initially rolling stone was like a, a national magazine that was centered in san francisco because again that was the epicenter of the hippie movement of everything that was going on that was important in the late 60s and early 70s right but then jan winter kind of spiritually decamped from san francisco even before the magazine did and then finally, Ralph Gleason, you remember Ralph Gleason, the jazz critic who kind of co-founded Rolling Stone, he mm-hmm. kept a, a column in every issue where basically he was just talking about San Francisco goings-on or whatever. And he eventually was like the last tether to the origin, the roots in San Francisco. And when he died in 1975, Jan Winter waited a couple more years and then moved the whole thing to New York City. And it was officially a, gen, a bona fide national, you can even say international magazine around that time. Yeah, and I think from what I understand, when Gleason died, he was sort of battling with uh, Winter at the time. Mm. Uh, and that they had fallings out and... I believe, I'm not so sure if it was personal, but maybe it got personal, but it was uh, definitely over like the direction of the magazine, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always got the feeling that Gleason was a little less likely to be accused of some of the sort of sellout things that mm-hmm. Win- Winner would eventually be accused of. He was a jazz critic. That's not exactly a, a <laughs> that profession you all. pursue <laughs> when you're an ambitious, money-hungry, you know, Wall Street type. Yeah, I think that's a good point. So um, Ed makes a really good point here. I've seen it elsewhere, too, and it's kind of like something that people have realized in the last, like, few years, maybe the last decade or so. And that is that 
Rolling Stone is possibly the most important mouthpiece for the boomer generation. Yeah. And that it was so important, it's entirely possible that things like Woodstock or the Beatles or the Summer of Love or all the stuff we associate with the beginnings of boomers and then onward and and onward, um, that Rolling Stone amplified it to a way that now we think of those things as like historic events, but... They might not be. We might think of them as historic events because Rolling Stone amplified it. Yeah, I don't, I don't agree with that. But I do agree that it has been a boomer mouthpiece for sure. For sure. But I don't think that one could reasonably make an argument that the Beatles wouldn't be the Beatles had it not been for Rolling Stone magazine coverage. No, no, no. I don't think that's the point. I think the point is would would the, would the we consider the Beatles as having changed the world if Rolling so. Stone had never been there. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely think so. All right. That's just my opinion. Okay. Um, what about wings? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love wings. Man, Jet, give me that all day long. Uh, one thing Rolling Stone was definitely at the forefront of, even though they did not create uh, what's called um, the new journalism. And this was basically when journalism went from – kind of anonymous style reporting to putting the writer uh, right in the middle of the story. And sometimes the story was even about the writer in the case of a Hunter S. Thompson, who was also at the forefront of new journalism. Mm -hmm. And it was very uh, literary style writing. It was very, uh, not flowery, because that sounds kind of haughty, but just sort of a kind of a higher caliber literary style writing than typical journalism had been. Um, I love it. I've always been a big fan of new journalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it has its place um, and shouldn't be confused with other kinds of journalism, but I'm, I've always been a big, big fan. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, and uh, there's – so Hunter Thompson, he was so he was so at the forefront of it. He actually spun off his own sub-discipline called gonzo journalism, mm. which is um, new journalism to the extreme – like the, when you spell extreme starting with an X kind of thing, right? <laughs> Why haven't we done an episode entirely on him yet? I don't Isn't know. That weird? We will someday. Uh, it just seems very strange for us. But he, so um, Jan Wenner did not discover Hunter Thompson. Um, he was actually kind of introduced to the magazine world. He'd already written Hell's Angels in 1968. Mm, so he made a name for himself, but the the first piece of gonzo journalism is considered um, the Kentucky Derby is decadent and depraved. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that was commissioned by um, Warren Hinkle, who had gone off and started another magazine. Right, and, former Rampart's chief. It, yes, exactly. And Warren Hinkle was the genius who put Ralph Steadman and Hunter Thompson together. Mm. And they first appeared together in the um, – I can't remember. Scanlon's, I think, is the name of the magazine, uh, with the the Kentucky Derby is decadent and depraved. And so Jan Winter saw this. He's like, this guy needs to come write for me. Or I think it might have been the other way around. I think Hunter Thompson showed up at Rolling Stone's offices and basically demanded that he be made a writer for that magazine. Yeah, and was certainly, you know, one of the the most famous writers they ever had, along with um, – Cameron Crowe, of course, was mm-hmm. well known as a teenage writer for Rolling Stone magazine. I know he got a, a cover assignment age sixteen. Yeah, to follow the Allman cool. Brothers, <laughs> and that's what Almost Famous is based on. Yeah, and he he very famously too it was sort of based on his work with uh, the band Eagles. <laughs> you mean the Eagles? 
It's eagles. And I always just like to annoy people by saying eagles. <laughs> That's awesome. Because <laughs> it's like, uh, who else was it? Or I might have already talked about this. It's eagles and, uh, oh, Hall and Oates. It's like Daryl Hall has a big bee in his bonnet about the fact that they're not Hall and Oates. They were always Daryl Hall and John Oates. Oh, really? And he's like, people just called us that, and that's not it's not on any of the records. They're all, they all say Daryl Hall and John Oates. Huh. And the Eagles, Don Henley's always like, it never was the Eagles. It's Eagles. That's funny. I'm like, all right, just relax. Another way to annoy people, Chuck, is just to play Eagles music. Right. <laughs> I came back around with the Eagles. Did you? That's great. Yeah, I mean, I, I, took, <laughs> I took off. I loved them growing up, and I, I took off probably 20 years. Two solid decades of no Eagles. That's great. And then I uh, came back around. I was like, I love this music. What am I doing? You're back off the wagon. <laughs> uh, so anyway, Hunter S. Thompson, a uh, very famous writer for them, obviously. Uh, and he did something which other writers in the new journalism school would do, which was, including one Tom Wolf, was use the magazine as not a testing ground, but as sort of the beginnings of what would become books by writing these sort of chapter-like installments mm -hmm. uh, every issue. And uh, Hunter S. Thompson did that. Tom Wolfe did that with uh, his early work on what would become The Right Stuff and The Bonfire of the Vanities. Yeah, um, man. Uh, Tom Wolfe, I think, is – I prefer Tom Wolfe to Hunter Thompson these days. I think he's oh, just – Oh, interesting. Yeah, I just like him more. But Hunter Thompson's um, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas was – it was born out of two different assignments – where Rolling Stone sent him to Las Vegas first to cover the Mint 400, and then to cover that, <laughs> then to the cover the convention, right? The police convention on drugs. And that's where the oh, book man. came from. Was those his submissions for from those two assignments? I think uh, Tom Wolfe is the natural graduation point from. Like you like Hunter S. Thompson more in your twenties and thirties, maybe. Yeah, but I also read Electric Kool Aid Kool Aid Acid Test. Yeah, around the same one. time. And I was just like, I love Hunter Thompson, but Tom Wolfe is just, I think, by far the better journalist. Yeah, Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test is the only thing I've read by Tom Wolfe, actually. Uh, the right stuff is really amazing, too. I the know, thing about Tom Wolfe is he, because he's a new journalist, he writes about things where he can be kind of involved or like he's there or it's really kind of like he puts you in the middle of what's going on. Sometimes in people's like bedrooms at night when a guy's yeah. talking to his wife and he does it so well that you forget, first of all, that you're not there, but then you forget that he wasn't there either. Right. Like he's working off interviews, sometimes other authors' notes. Um, <laughs> and it, he just gives the, he's, he's so good at it. You, you right. just assume like he was there for all this stuff and he wasn't there for any of it. There's like a couple in bed and it just pans over and Tom Wolf sitting there in his <laughs> seersucker suit. Yep, exactly. <laughs> With his legs crossed. Very interesting. That's right. Can you say that again? Uh, other famous uh, writers early on that went on to have outsized careers elsewhere is uh, MTV's Kurt Loder, mm -hmm. uh, Joe Esterhaus, uh, <laughs> screenwriter and filmmaker. Of what? Oh, Esterhaus was, he was Fatal Attraction, right? Fatal Attraction? It just goes downhill from there. Basic Instinct, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sliver, uh huh. Showgirls, Jade. Showgirls, of course. But it's weird. Like he had a real type. His his screenplay was a real. Oh yeah. Like you know, like hey, you want to see some some boobs, twelve year old kid? Come see my <laughs> movies. That was the oh, yeah. Joe Esther House's jam. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, Lester Bangs from Cream Magazine wrote for Rolling Stone, and then uh, of course the legendary journalist uh, Bing, Ben Fong Torres, mm -hmm. who. Uh, 
was one of the greatest Rolling Stone writers in their in their history for sure. Yeah, for sure. And all these people like were legitimately great writers. Um, and they were contributing to this music magazine that really just also had its finger on the pulse of really good journalism too. Yeah. So in that um, article on the uh, from the Atlantic, they do quite a bit of speculating on um, sort of when they think Rolling Stone might have started selling out and mm-hmm. become something uh, untrue to its roots. And and they basically talk about even in the seventies and eighties. Uh, basically, you know, Jan Winter saw the writing on the wall and said, hey, we can't just be a boomer archive and a nostalgia jam, and I want to sell magazines, so we're going to start writing about TV shows and comedians and, and uh, I mean, they always wrote about politics, but, mm-hmm. you know, really expanded beyond the sort of mission statement, which was a largely music magazine, which also wrote about politics, and it, it became something else entirely and really became a popular hugely popular magazine. Yeah, because, I mean, like, Rolling Stone as an institution was just keeping up with the times. Um, if it if it was, you know, looking backward to, like, the, the greatest moments in boomer history, mm-hmm. you can thank Jan Wenner almost personally for that. And so it's kind of weird. As, as Jan Wenner, who was, like, controlling everything, he, he had to let the magazine reinvent itself, even though he personally... You know, he, he. You know, I'm sure he did. He went to Studio 54 and stuff like that in the in the 70s, and like you know, went to Sardi's for lunch in the 80s and all that stuff. But he, like, I saw an interview with him in 2017, and he just casually tosses out the Stones and the Beatles, and it's like it's 2017, man, and this guy's still citing like the big three whenever he brings up music from the 60s, right? So which were who? Uh, it was the Beatles, Beatles probably. It was the Beatles, the Stones. I think I automatically question somebody who uses the Stones, and that's it. <laughs> and then, um, man, I'm trying to find this quote. It was like a, a, a an interview with NPR. Um, but oh, uh, the the Beatles, the Stones, and Dylan. That's another uh, thing of too. Course. If you just say Dylan and the Stones, <laughs> I say both those things. All right, Chuck. But. My my point is that Jan Winter is frequently accused of what's called rockism, which is we talked about it in our Rock and Roll Hall of Fame episode. This idea that rock is white guys using a bass, an electric guitar, drums, maybe a rhythm guitar, and a lead singer. Um, they probably use a lot of hair product, and like that's rock, and nothing else matters. Mm-hmm. Apparently, Jan Winter really personifies that, and one of the reasons why people get snubbed from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inexplicably is because mm-hmm. of him specifically. It seems. Yeah, I mean, he's is he the head chair or is he just on the board? He's definitely high up in it, enough that yeah. he can be like, no, I don't even want them on the ballot kind of thing. Yeah, and if you remember our Rock and Roll Hall of Fame episode, we talk about snubs, and a lot of people have had very personal beefs with Winter over the years because of this. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to read a couple of choice quotes from his, uh, this from the Atlantic article, but from his biography. Yeah. Uh, Winner was a little barbarian whose lust for money, drugs, and sex threatened to outpace his razor intellect and turn him into Augustus Gloop, falling into the chocolate river of the 1960s. Uh, Rolling Stone was an expression of Winner's pursuit of fame and power, a magazine more than occasionally at the mercy of his editor's unembarrassed appetite for stardom and excess, with ma- which made him an object of scorn and parody. Mm-hmm. And basically, he said it was a parable for the age of narcissism. Uh, 
And then one final little bit here. Uh, as newsstand sales rose, Winter became hungry for still more sales. By the mid-70s, the focus of Rolling Stone had shifted from what the editors determined to be the best in pop culture to what was measurably the biggest. Yeah, And I think that was where a lot of people say he lost his way. It was like, well, what's hot? Let's just write about that, not right. what's great. Yeah, I saw there was a dust-up years back, I guess in the 90s maybe, where one of his music reviewers didn't write a flattering review of Hootie and the Blowfish's latest album. <laughs> and Jan Wenner himself killed the, the review and ha assigned it to another writer who wrote a much more favorable review. And they were like, well, you know, this this record company is a huge advertiser with Rolling Stone. And that's, I mean, that's what, he just did that, you know? And I think people see him as a founder of this, like, really mm -hmm. hip magazine that was like a voice and a reflection of the times and it kept reinventing itself and they want him to be like legit and grounded in like that kind of ethos and he just wasn't like people yeah. wanted to pigeonhole him like that and he just was not like that i don't know him well enough and i haven't read his biography to see if he tried to put himself out there like that and that's why people expected him uh -huh. to be or if it was just because he was so closely associated with rolling stone people mistakenly assumed things about him and then found out right. he wasn't actually that way. I don't know which is which. All right, so uh, let's take our second break and we'll talk about some of the biggest uh, controversies in Rolling Stone history right after this. Who hasn't heard names like Achilles or Odysseus, Cassandra, Medusa? But how much do you know about them from the ancient world? Let's Talk About Myths Baby is the podcast bringing the ancient sources to life. Greek myth and history is timeless, and unless you've been living under a rock, you have seen just how true that is today. But there is so much more to these characters and stories than what pop culture can do justice. I'm Liv Albert, the host of Let's Talk About Myths, Baby, and every week I bring you stories from the ancient world, both mythological and historical, to breathe new life into these thousands of years old stories. I'm also regularly joined by some of the most brilliant names in the field of archaeology and ancient history, authors of your favorite retellings from today, and everyone in between. Join me as I dive into the wild world of the ancient Greeks and their stories. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths, Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years 
and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we're back, Chuck. Um, and we're here to talk about now some of the low points of Rolling Stone <laughs> history. This isn't a hit piece. No, but I mean, I think all of the things that we're going to talk about in the last bit here can be uh, classified under one in one big bucket, which is bad journalism, uh, lazy journalism, abandoning journalistic integrity mm-hmm. for the sake of an article. And it's really a shame that... They've done this kind of repeatedly. Yeah, Joe Esterhaas is rolling over on top of Showgirl right now. <laughs> oh, boy, that's a sight. <laughs> uh, so I guess chief among these um, sort of high-profile instances is uh, the 2014 article, A Rape on Campus, uh, by Sabrina Erdley, which made all kinds of news. It was a story about... A, a gang rape at the University of Virginia uh, at a fraternity house. And the more the story sort of was investigated, the more it came out that um, not only were there a lot of big-time journalistic flaws, um, but you know eventually uh, lawsuits and a full retraction of the story mm-hmm. and police investigations that the story was, was made up. I mean, Journalism 101 flaws – like um, the the author Sabrina Rubin Erdley did not interview friends um, who came out publicly and said, "Hey, what this what this story is saying is not what Jackie, the pseudonym of the woman who claimed to have been, I think, gang raped even uh-huh. at a fraternity house." Um, that's not what she told us that night. There wasn't even a party that night, um, and apparently, it just became more and more 
clear that the the entire event did not happen and that the the Rolling Stones journalists who they sent out to do this really important story did not didn't do some basic fact checking and as a result just bought the whole thing hook line and sinker yeah and in the end Rolling Stone ended up either losing or settling a bunch of lawsuits with administration at UVA uh, some of the students and the fraternity at UVA um, it came out during this process that uh, apparently there were text messages that seemed to support the idea that uh, this young woman made this up to gain the affection of a boy on campus. Um, oh I, I tried to look as much into it as I could, but um, in the end, they completely retracted the article, which is a really big deal for a major publication to like fully retract and say, all right, this article, we do not stand by it. We're taking it. You know, We have takesies-backsies privileges. And they even commissioned, I guess to their credit, a, a Columbia University School of Journalism review mm-hmm. and published that, uh, the findings of that review, which were not kind. No, the review was titled Tisk, Tisk, Tisk. Right. <laughs> but even worse than, you know, Rolling Stone losing face and credibility and millions of dollars is that, like, th- this was used as shorthand for people who kind of yeah. – who were like, we shouldn't really believe, you know, rape survivors. Yeah. And uh, that – Keeps that has a chilling effect on actual rape survivors from coming forward and like naming their accusers. It was a huge, huge problem that was created by this. That you know, I think it would even came up in the Brett Kavanaugh hearing. Somebody basically used it for mm-hmm. that oh, yeah. to that end too. Camille so, Cosby talked about it on the courthouse steps. Are you serious? Oh yeah. Wow. So yeah. So it was a big deal. It was a big fall down. And you can really easily point to that as the biggest mistake in the history of Rolling Stone magazine by far. Yeah, another big one was an article in 2003 from Gregory Freeman uh, about uh, what's called bug chasers, which is um, what appears to be a very fringe thing where uh, gay men want to be HIV positive and 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 try to have unprotected sex with people they know are HIV positive. And basically the same kind of thing. Not a lot of fact-checking. Um, he interviewed a couple of doctors who he says they, uh, they said that they um, said it was like 25% of the, the gay male community are bug chasers. And both of the doctors said, I never said that at all. Like I said the opposite. And then the author later came out and said, no, I remember those conversations explicitly and they're just not admitting to it. And I didn't record the interviews, which you should probably always do. Right. And so that that was obviously another big sort of black eye on the magazine. Yeah. Um, and then, so, uh, and I think it was, they were saying 25% of new HIV cases come from bug chasers or something. Yeah, like yeah, that. I think yeah. I mistaken. But that. it's still, it's just, a, that's just a ridiculously, um, a ridiculous amount. So, Chuck, um, this was in the past, right? There was another big one too, another big flub. They sent Sean Penn to interview El Chapo, uh-huh. Like the most powerful, vicious drug cartel leader in the world. They sent Sean Penn to do it. And Sean Penn sent back a dispatch that was really flattering, really sympathetic, and really one-sided. And so they were really criticized for that as well. But that's all in the past. Rolling Stone <laughs> has refound its footing, correct? And it's uh, everything is all good now. Uh, no, apparently not correct. 
just recently, I, I remember just reading this in my subscription not too long ago. Mm-hmm. They wrote an article about Taylor Hawkins after he like very soon after he died. Mm-hmm. That um, a lot of the people in the article. Uh, like, you know, famous musicians that were quoted came out and said, wait a minute, this is really taken out of context. I didn't mean this stuff. Mm -hmm. I didn't say this stuff. The article kind of basically said that the Foo Fighters kind of killed him with their schedule and that Dave Grohl wouldn't let up. And it was, you know, had a big reason. It was a big reason why he died. Mm -hmm. And that was a, a very recent stain. Uh, they also did a hit piece on Marilyn Manson that didn't preside, present any of his side of the story. He was accused of sexual abuse by an ex-girlfriend, Evan Rachel Wood. And it was, um, yeah, very one-sided. And a lot of people came out and said, like, the, the ones who were quoted were like, I gave them paragraphs and paragraphs of stuff, and they used one sentence, you know, because I was speaking out in defense of Marilyn Manson. Um, There's also one that was considered having given a moral victory to anti-vaxxers. They posted a story about how Oklahoma's emergency rooms were being overrun with people who were having toxic reactions to ivermectin, who were taking that that cattle dewormer when they caught COVID. And apparently it was just fake, wrong. Not only that, they ran a picture of people lined up wearing masks in winter coats and the events that they described were took place in summer so it was just from top to bottom a terrible story and that seems to be what's going on and i read an article on um a, a website called saving country music and this this um author basically points to the hiring of noah shackman from the daily beast to take over and noah shackman said we're going to start making our journalism more immediate more visceral and faster, louder, and harder. And this saving country music person is like, that's the opposite of what uh, journalists are supposed to do. When you do things fast and immediate, you're sacrificing, like, follow-ups, getting secondary sources, fact-checking. And that seems to be where a lot of the most recent, like, flubs and um, biffs are coming from. Yeah, like, I I think it's that digital journalism thing where you want to be the first to break a story. Mm-hmm. And that's where it's just a, a minefield if you try and operate that way, you know? Yeah, but I also get the impression that it's also – it's clickbait. They're fanning the flames of outrage right. culture and, and or, like at the expense of society's sanity basically is how the saving country music person put it. And they're trying to save country music. Yeah. But no, they had some – it was a really erudite, amazing, like really insightful post by Trigger on savingcountrymusic.com. <laughs> <laughs> you got anything else? I got nothing else. I mean, this could have been a, a two-parter, but that, that's a good Rolling Stone magazine overview. I'm still going to read it, but I'm going to take it for what it's worth. Okay, there you go. But get get a subscription to Cream. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it, everybody, for Rolling Stone. And since Chuck said get a subscription to Cream, of course, that means it's time for listener mail. Uh, this is a great email from a, a mum in New Zealand. <laughs> Uh, Kia Ora, Josh and Chuck. I'm writing you all the way from New Zealand, and it's currently 10.53 p.m., and I need to thank you. Uh, You, my friends, are my last bargaining chip, my last resort, and more often than not, the best thing to get a bit of peace. Sounds like an insult, but let me explain. I have two wonderful, beautiful, enthusiastic, uh, intelligent girls, 11 and 9 years old, and a frequent occurrence in our house is the reluctance to go to bed. (laughs) Sometimes sleep just eludes them. I get it. It eludes me too. However, if all else fails, what about Josh and Chuck? We'll usually get them to where I need them to be. Uh, Tucked up in usually my bed with your two comforting voices, 
teaching them about animal science and random things, they settle and relax enough to let old Sandman take them away. Although your content is incredibly interesting, your tones are soothing and comforting, like a big hug to settle into. And you are often my go-to when I need a comfort food podcast. And it seems you have the same effect on my girls. Keep being awesome. You're very much appreciated. From a tired mom, Bethany. And uh, I wrote Bethany back and asked if she wanted to name her girls. And she said, absolutely. That is Allison Page. And uh, she had just written me back after, I believe, using our show to get Paige to sleep. Very nice. Allison Page, also known as Thing One and Thing Two. That's right. And Allison Page, uh, give mom a break. Cooperate at bedtime. Yeah. Let's get it together, kids. (laughs) Get it together, kids. Uh, Well, thank you. Who was the mom? Uh, Bethany. Thank you very much, Bethany. Uh, That was very nice to let us know that. And I'm glad we could help out. And hello to Alice and Paige and everybody there down under. Uh, Is she from New Zealand? New Zealand. Okay. The Uh, downest of unders. Exactly. Um, If you want to get in touch with us like Bethany did, you can send us an email. Even from New Zealand. It'll get here. Wrap it up, spank it on the bottom, and send it off to stuffpodcast at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. It's been almost 3,000 years, and Greek mythology has proved that it is not going anywhere. But it can be difficult to find entertaining and engaging retellings of these myths that aren't fictionalized. Lucky for you, I'm here. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is the Greek mythology and ancient history podcast of your dreams. I dive into the convoluted and confusing ancient sources so you don't have to. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there.